Thank you, Kitty. It's, it's actually it's a delight to be here uh, at Aspen again, and it's a delight to be back in this room where over the years I've moderated uh, many, many uh, executive seminars and some other programs for the Institute uh, uh, as well. Uh, it, was, it came as a surprise to me also. I, didn't, I was also caught up in the, all the business about the thing being moved around and so on, and so I apologize uh, again if there's any inconvenience or, or, uh, or, or confusion. Uh, what I'm going to do, since I didn't prepare a formal presentation about my novel uh, and my interview isn't here, I'm going to interview myself. I, I'm going to, uh, and the good thing about interviewing myself is there's no trick questions. <laughs> there's nothing I won't have prepared. Well, I'll try to throw in a couple of curveballs toward the end of things I hadn't, uh, I hadn't uh, thought about. I'm going, to, I, I'm going to talk for a few minutes. Uh, I'm going to answer questions for a few minutes about the book. Uh, I'm going to answer the questions I've had in interviews about the book already. Uh, and then I will uh, take questions, of course, and, and thoughts and comments uh, that all of you uh, might have had. Uh, the one thing I, I do want to say uh, on the self-serving uh, level is the, my novel, The uh, Impeachment of Abraham Lincoln, will not be formally published until next week. The only place in the entire world it is currently on sale is in... Aspen, Colorado, where I'll actually be signing copies of it in the tent uh, uh, this afternoon. Anyway, so on uh, with the interview. So, so Carter, uh, the impeachment of Abraham Lincoln? As one interviewer said to me, where exactly do you get off? Someone from NPR said that. That'll be on the air next, uh, <laughs> next weekend. Where do you get off? Well, let me explain, first of all, that I am a Lincoln fan. I am an amateur Lincoln buff. I've got four shelves of Lincoln books in my study at home. I think Lincoln was our greatest president. I have no question in my mind about that. Let me make all of that clear. Nevertheless, as a fictional premise, as the setting for a, a courtroom thriller, I guess you could call it, the idea that Lincoln survives the assassination attempt from Booth and then faces an uprising in his own party, and which ends up in an impeachment trial, I thought it would be a great what-if, a great fictional premise. And it's not... One of the things we, we don't perhaps sufficiently appreciate about Lincoln is that Lincoln was not very popular in his own party. The Republican Party of the 1860s was a new party, it had really just been invented, as Lincoln liked to say. Uh, it was a combination of a number of older uh, parties that had very little in common. What they had in common mainly was a passion for the Union. They were organized against the Democratic Party of the day, which was largely the slavery pro-secessionist party. But Lincoln wasn't popular. Well, they looked at Lincoln, and the thing you have to understand is Lincoln is a man without formal education, he had a funny accent, although he hardly ever has a funny accent in the movies, but in real life he had a funny accent. He had a high, reedy voice. And the leaders of his party, who were very well educated, today we would call them liberal New Englanders, looked down their noses on him. He was a lesser man. He wasn't as smart as they were. He wasn't as morally good as they were. They saw him as this guy who'd kind of awe shucked and joked his way into the presidency when there were better men who could have held that, and they never forgave him for winning the election in that sense. And as late as 1864, 
the leaders of his party were trying to get him to step aside, to let, as they put it, as, as uh, uh, Senator Sumner of Massachusetts put it, to let a better man, to let a better man take this chair. Uh, that was the state of the party. They didn't like him. And they also thought he'd gathered too much power to himself. There were a lot of fears. The Republican Party today was very much a pro-congressional, anti-executive party. A lot of the leading Republicans actually favored parliamentary government. They didn't like the idea of a strong presidency. Lincoln, in the course of his presidency, in the course of the war, gathered more authority into his own hands than any president before or since, and they didn't like that. There were people who were actually scared of him. There were rumors that Lincoln was plotting a military coup, that members of Congress are going to be arrested. So you think of all that as the background. We don't talk about that much. And that makes at least my story plausible. Now, it's a novel. It's supposed to be for fun. It's a murder mystery, and it's kind of, uh, I hope it's a courtroom drama. But that's some of the background uh, of it. So, Carter. Given that background, do you think Lincoln actually did anything that he should be impeached for, or is that all just invented by his political foes? Well, here's where the story, I think, gets kind of interesting. Um, well, they didn't have telephones in those days, of course, <laughs> but, but if they had, this is what they all would have been talking to each other about, was the things that, uh, uh, that Lincoln had, uh, had done. So think about this. So Lincoln, in the course of the Civil War, does the following. He suspends the writ of habeas corpus, the right that all of us have that comes down from British law, that if we're arrested, a judge can issue an order that, the, that we have to be produced in court with, there's another one, with actual, with actual charges to face, that we can't just be detained. Well, Lincoln suspended that. What else did Lincoln do? When, with, when courts would order that people who had been arrested under the suspension of habeas corpus be produced, Lincoln said, no, we're not going to do it. What else did he do? Well, journalists who wrote critical stories about the war, in some cases, were subjected to military courts martial. If convicted, they were expelled from the front, and if they reappeared, they were thrown in prison. Several opposition newspapers were shuttered and had their presses seized and their editors locked up. At a number of different times, uh, People who were ordinary citizens of Washington, D.C., for example, were threatened with long-term confinement in military prisons for a variety of offenses unless they would do various things that the administration uh, wanted, uh, uh, wanted done. Those are some of the examples. There's a lot more. There is the use of the military to keep the Maryland state legislature from meeting so that they wouldn't be able to vote to secede from the union, and on and on. The list could go on and on and on and on. Lincoln's answer to critics for all of this was it was necessary to win the war, and winning the war is a higher goal than obeying this or that particular law. Lincoln said it can't possibly be the design of the founders of the Constitution that because there's this one little law over here, the United States has to be destroyed as a country. That was his basic argument. Maybe you think he was right. Maybe you think he was wrong. For me, it's just an interesting question to argue about, especially today, because in, under Obama and under Bush, and going back some years now, we tend to call very freely for impeachment of presidents we don't like when they do stuff. Now, oh, he should be impeached for that, he should be impeached for this or that. But when you look at 
the stuff that we argue about today is trivial. I really mean that trivial compared to the stuff they were arguing about and killing each other over in the middle of the 19th century. And so sitting around thinking about what Lincoln did and said and so on uh, is to me quite an interesting exercise. All right, Carter, but what's the bottom line? Are you saying Lincoln should have been impeached or he shouldn't have been impeached? Well, if I had a vote, I don't think I would have voted to impeach him, but I, you know, I may have a particular stake in, this, in the outcome of this uh, uh, contest. But the question for me isn't the should. It's the conversation. It's having the argument. All right, Carter. Well, let's get away from the impeachment part um, uh, for a minute. Let's talk about the heroine in your novel. It's a young black woman who wants to be a lawyer, Yes, the novel is told mostly from the point of view of a 21-year-old black woman, at the time they would have said Negro woman or colored woman, um, who was a graduate of Oberlin and wants to be a lawyer. At this time in the 1860s, there were about, we don't have precise numbers, but there were probably about eight or ten black lawyers in the United States. There were, of course, no female uh, lawyers. Not every state had a formal rule against women being in the bar, but a lot of them did. Uh, so there were no, there were no uh, women lawyers, very few black lawyers, but she has her heart set on being a lawyer. She's gone to Oberlin. She'd studied with Charles Finney, who was one of the great abolitionist preachers, and she's been persuaded she can do anything she wants to. She comes to Washington. She has a letter of employment from a, as a clerk at a law firm that hired her by correspondence, not knowing that she was black. Uh, and this law firm is the one that it happens Lincoln hires to defend him. Now, she's just a lowly clerk. She's not a, uh, a lawyer. Nevertheless, she becomes enmeshed in a number of, I won't spoil the novel, larger conspiracy aspects, and there's a murder mystery on the side before we get to uh, the trial itself. And in choosing her as my heroine, part of it, I think, was trying to get a complete outsider's perspective. Novels about that era are usually told from the point of view, if they're political novels, of some sort of insider. Uh, But in addition to wanting an outsider perspective, I also thought it'd be interesting to illuminate a little bit about the middle class uh, black families of that day, which is something that almost lost to history, even though there were a significant number of them, especially in Washington, uh, and Maryland in particular was, and, and upstate New York were places where there were quite a few uh, middle class uh, black families. Middle class, usually they weren't so much that there had been generations of college education, but there were often people who had been free and earning a living at various trades and earning, not getting rich, but certainly being solidly middle class for a number of years as well. So I wanted to write about that a little bit just as a way of, of illuminating a part of the 1860s that we don't usually see. Now, now Carter, this is different from your other writing. You've written, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, <laughs> nine, uh, nine nonfiction books about uh, war and about the, the rules of war and about the, or the ethics of war. Oh, right, the ethics of war uh, and uh, about uh, law and religion and religion and politics and things like that. And you've written some other novels, or I guess we could call them, what would you say, some family sagas, thrillers? Why Why suddenly set a novel in the 1860s? Why suddenly go away from what we've been doing before and do Lincoln? Well, it's a novel in a sense that I had wanted to write for a very long time. Um, it had been tickling around in the back of my head. I became a Lincoln fan when I was very young. 
Uh, my father in our house in Washington, I was a child, had a wall of books on the second floor of our house. The entire, one entire wall encompassing both the living room and the dining room was these bookshelves. And I used to take down these books at random and I didn't read them. As my, I was a little kid. As my father put it, I read, I read at them. I'd turn, open to a page and try to figure out what was going on. Um, in fact, one of my memories is, is taking down Nietzsche's book, Man and Superman, expecting to find some sort of comic book uh, uh, hero in it. Uh, but one of the things he had was he had all eight volumes of Carl Sandburg's Lincoln biography, the, the four volumes of the Prairie Years and the four volumes of the War Years. And as you may know, it's the most ambitious Lincoln biography ever attempted. It is, of course, available in a one-volume edition, which is not very good, but the long one is, is quite good. Um, and I used to take down the volumes of this, and these I began to find I could read. And that was really my interest in Lincoln began. I think I didn't read them cover to cover, but I would sort of, I'd take one down and start reading about some Lincoln story. And it was my first experience reading any serious biography at all. I mean, I was, I was a kid. But I've been fascinated by Lincoln ever since. I wrote papers on him in high school. I wrote papers on him uh, in college. I've read a lot of Lincoln, a lot about him for years. And if you look back at the history, about 100 years ago, there was a cottage industry of historians writing about what, how history would have been different if Lincoln had lived. That kind of died out. Um, but there was a time when that was, uh, uh, when people wrote about that a lot. You could easily find books written in the 1890s, say, where historians and Lincoln biographers take up that question. And for me, the question was always, what if he hadn't been assassinated or survived the assassination? Uh, then later, as a legal scholar, I became interested in impeachment and in executive power. Those two are the areas I've written a lot about. And so you see how it all combines in this. But it took me a while to come up with a story, and then it took me a while to write it. It took me three years to write this novel. I do a lot of research. I re do a lot of research for my novels anyway. I think that's partly because I, my training is as a scholar, so I like to have background and backing for the things that I say and I write about. But with Lincoln, it took a lot more. Um, I had to track down everything from um, photographs of the view up and down uh, 7th Street in southwest Washington in the 1860s because Abigail Canner, my heroine, that's where she lives. And it was important to me to be accurate in saying what would be outside her house. What would she see? Would she on her way to, home, to, um, to her house and away from her house and, and so on? Or for another example, I, I tracked down a report by the Provost Marshal General of the U.S. Army about brothels in Washington, D.C. during the war. That was important because it's a scene that takes place outside a brothel, and I wanted to make it a real brothel and have, and have the aspects of it right. Well, this was a very comprehensive report. I was able to do that. I read, in addition to Lincoln biographies, I read a lot of Lincoln's correspondence. I read a lot of letters and diaries by people who met Lincoln because I wanted to get a sense of his conversational style. Since I was inventing dialogue to such, for such a revered figure, Oh, even though it's an invention, I wanted it to, it to feel plausible that if he had survived, these would have been the cadences, these would have been the sorts of things he would have said. Lincoln was a great teller of funny stories. He loved to do that. He does it a number of times in my novel. I tried to use, I did use, only stories that are pretty well attested to Lincoln. There are a lot of stories that are attributed to Lincoln, but some of them never showed up until the 1930s and 1940s. I tried to stick to stories that are well attributed to Lincoln by people who actually met Lincoln face-to-face -face and said he told the story, and those are the only ones that I used in, um, uh, in the book. And then there was another kind of research uh, that I had to do. Uh, the English language has changed in the United States a lot in the 150 years. Any of you who study uh, philology, say, would probably already have a sense of that. So, for example, 
the use of contractions in public speech was almost unheard of. If you were, it was a sign of being uneducated that you would say can't instead of cannot or don't instead of do not. Sometimes my characters in their public speeches still use the contractions because it began to feel too stilted. At least that's what my editor thought, and I think she was probably right, that it was a little too stilted to have so many people speaking without any contractions and so on. But public language among the educated was intentionally flowery. There were lots and lots of Latin words and Latin roots, uh, words with Latin roots that were used in ordinary public language as a way of setting apart from, you see, uh, the masses who had a different sort of language of, of their own. Uh, and doing that was actually pretty hard uh, to do that without getting so caught up in making the language right that it would all begin to feel stilted. I think my editor was very helpful uh, with that uh, aspect of it. So, so Carter, let me ask you the question that, that we're all, that, that, that puzzles a lot of us. How do you get all this writing done? I mean, you, you write uh, nonfiction, you write fiction, you teach students, you um, write, I assume, scholarly articles or whatever it is you people do, things like that. <laughs> um, where do you find the time to do all that? Well, I, I think my wife was here to tell I don't really have time to do all that is the easiest uh, uh, answer, that it comes with some sacrifice. I probably do a little less writing than I did, say, 10 or 15 years ago. But the truth is, I just like writing. I like putting words on a page. I don't really have another skill than putting words together. And I have been blessed enough uh, to be able to make a living putting words on a page. It's the only thing that I, that I can really do. And I like it, whether I'm writing an op-ed of some kind or a column, whether I'm writing a scholarly article, whether I'm writing a novel or a short story or a book of or a nonfiction book of some kind, I, I just find putting words together itself is something I really enjoy. And even when it's hard, it's exhilarating. And, and let me make clear, um, I like all the kinds of writing that I do, but the fiction is much harder. Sometimes the final product of the fiction is more satisfying, but it's much harder. It takes much more out of me. Somehow I end up much more uh, emotionally invested in the fiction than I ever am in the nonfiction. When I write nonfiction, so for example, I, I had a book that came out last year. It was called The Violence of Peace, America's Wars in the Age of Obama. It's a book about just war theory, which Obama has brought up as a topic, and looking at the United States and its, its various wars through that lens. Um, so I wrote a book like that. I, I'm not trying when I write books like that. I, I don't want people to pick them up and say, by gum, Carter is right. I'm perfectly content if people read them and think I'm wrong in an interesting way. They want to argue, not call names. That part I hate, but argue. Uh, that's good. I, I like to participate in actual dialogue. I, I believe in that. And that's what I'm doing. I, and that may, so there's less at stake for me uh, in terms of ego when I'm writing nonfiction. When I'm writing fiction, it's all an invention. Every page is something I made up, something I manufactured. And that, for me, generates enormous tension and often, frankly, enormous fear. Uh, I'm, I'm always worried that finally I will write a story that people will find so utterly implausible that they'll never want to read uh, one of my books again. But, but I, that generates the tension, but at the same time, that also means I'm, I think I'm exercising a different part of my brain. And each kind of work I do, each kind of writing, whether it be fiction or nonfiction, is, in a sense, a break from the other kind of writing uh, that I do. 
So, Cordell, let's get back to the impeachment point for a minute. Uh, clearly, I, I, I understand this is fiction. I understand you write to entertain, as you say, in all the novels. You're not trying to hit people overhead with a message. I, I understand that. However, surely there are some resonances between that era you were writing about and the current day. Can you tease out any of that for us? Well, since you insist, <laughs> I, 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 I will. Just a, a couple of things. One is that it's become a commonplace today to say that our politics are worse, nastier than they've been in the past. I don't think that's actually true. Politics have always been nasty, and they're nasty in my novel. The difference isn't how nasty they are. The difference is how much time we spend on them. That's the point. That in the 19th century, politics would occupy you for a few months every four years. It wasn't following the ins and outs and ups and downs of each party and each candidate was not a full-time occupation in which it seemed 80% of the American people are deeply engaged at every moment, egged on by cable uh, television and talk radio and, and various political bloggers. I think every little moment is a moment to be deeply and intensely political. That's the change. It's not the intensity. It's that that has become such an important hobby for so many people, as opposed to touches your life for a brief period every now and then. So in Lincoln's age, the politics are very nasty, and Lincoln could play as hard as any of them. You know, people would tell the stories for years about the convention that nominated Lincoln in Illinois for president of the United States. They had a president voting rule. In order to vote for a candidate, you had to be there. So on the day of the nomination, what Lincoln's forces did was they got a lot of extra people who they pulled off the street to come and take all the seats so that various people for other candidates couldn't get in the door. So Lincoln's people always said he would have won anyway. His critics said he wouldn't have won anyway. Who knows? I'm glad that, uh, that he won. But there's one other difference about politics in those days that I really like, that I think would be so wonderful. Presidential candidates didn't campaign. It was considered beneath the dignity of someone to be president of the United States to ask for votes. They never did it. They just didn't do it. They had surrogates who would go out and so on. They had newspapers who would fight. The candidate was never seen. Never. It was unseemly. You got nominated and you disappeared. You went back home. You sat around. You corresponded with people. You saw your campaign staff. But you never went out in public until you won. That or lost, as the case may be. That, and I actually think that adds a dignity to the office. I think it's actually a good thing. I think, now I'm not saying it would fix our politics today. I don't think anything's going to fix our politics today. But I actually think that we have, over the last three or four administrations, we've successively reduced the dignity of the presidency. And this isn't, anybody, this isn't a left-right issue. It's that, that, that there's no sense about the specialness of the office other than the power and authority the president happens to wield. And that's not trivial, but it's not, we don't set it distinct in that way as it was in the 19th century, which I actually think was probably a good thing. But other than that, the politics weren't better then. The politics were as bad, and maybe they were Worse. We still have the problem that there were some places where uh, there's one famous incident that uh, a politician member who was giving a speech in New York, and people got so mad that one of them went out and got his prize cow and slaughtered it and threw it up on the stage. He and some men came up to the stage and threw this bleeding cow up in the middle of the stage to show how much they hated the, uh, uh, the speech. We don't do that a- anymore, so maybe we have gotten, uh, gotten better. 
Well, well uh, uh, Carter, I want to leave some time uh, for some questions or comments uh, from the audience. Uh, but, but let me just ask you uh, this one, one last question. Have you seen or are you going to see this movie, Abraham Lincoln, uh, 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 Vampire Hunter? Well, I haven't seen it. Um, I probably uh, uh, will see it. But, but I do think that, that there's, a, there's a point behind this. There's a... There's a there's the Spielberg movie about Lincoln coming out. There are apparently several more Lincoln biographies coming out this year. There's so many Lincoln books. There's so many Lincoln events. There's a great excitement about Lincoln. And I think that, that there's a yearning, uh, in a sense, uh, for the heroic age to come back. Somehow, we, even though we know it's not really true with one part of the brain, another part of the brain thinks, you know, there were giants in those days. You know, there were giants in the earth in those days, and they were named Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln and so on, and they were big, world-straddling figures, and they, could, they never had any problems. They made decisions. They could handle things, and none of it is really true. But I do think it's that yearning. And the yearning in Lincoln's case, I think, is actually very useful. Lincoln is an enormously complex figure. He certainly deserves our admiration, but not deification. And I think to begin to understand the complexity of Lincoln and the complexity of his era, to try to get a sense of the things he had to overcome, not only become president, but in order to win the war uh, and, and so on, to understand how hard it all was and how close it all came to failure so many times, to the extent we get interested in things, whether through movies or books or otherwise, that help us to want to delve into that era more deeply, I think that's all to be good. The 1860s, I believe, are the most important era still in the history of the United States. My students, you know, think about elections today. You know, most of you, I'm sure, are much younger than I am, but, but, but you notice that in elections, every single time, every single time there's an election, it's the most important election in decades. There's never been an election in my lifetime as important. It's, where did that come from? I mean, I suppose it came from the need of news people to get people to watch. But, but where did it come from? No. The most important election in history was in 1864. No question, hands down, nothing else was even close. Because if McClellan wins instead of Lincoln, he makes peace with the South, and the South successfully secedes. Now, economists and economic historians will tell you the South could not have survived. Its system of slavery was inefficient. It would have collapsed. No question. I agree with that. But you would have had probably 30, 40, maybe 50 more years of slavery. Imagine that. If McClellan wins in 1864, you probably still have slavery in, in the southern, in the Confederate States of America in 1915, 1920. Try to picture that, and you see why that's the most important election in American history. Anyway, let me stop at that point, uh, because I know we're, we should get in some questions. And if you have questions, I, I'm supposed to ask you to come to the microphone if you can, because the session is being... Uh, Recorded. I would also ask you, for the sake of our, the rest of the audience, and I'm sure that our speaker would agree with you, please keep your questions short and in the form of a question. Hal Brook from the Colorado As of April 1865, I think Lincoln would have had quite good defenses to his conduct to that point. On habeas corpus, because Washington was cut off, Emancipation Proclamation, military needs, First Amendment stuff, the First Amendment then, was not what it is now. So is he impeached for then letting the South up too easy after April 14th? That's a, that's a great question and an important one. Uh, in my fiction, he's impeached because a big faction, which is partly uh, people in his own party and partly actually the soft money crowd, wants to get rid of him for a variety of reasons. There was a big soft money, hard money battle going on uh, in the politics of the North at the time, a really big battle. Um, 
But the charges that are leveled are along those lines, plus, as you say, letting the South up too easy is one of the big charges. Lincoln used to talk about letting them up easy, although Lincoln, in spite of the several different plans that he presented, was never entirely clear on what he intended to do in terms of Reconstruction in the South. When Lincoln was assassinated, Reconstruction was largely taken over by Congress. Uh, Probably, had Lincoln lived, the South would be reconstructed according to Lincoln's own vision. He was powerful enough and, and influential enough that could have happened. Andrew Johnson was a non-entity in, uh, in that sense. But in my fiction, you're right. There were defenses to all those things, including, for example, habeas corpus. The Congress ratified it, as you said, and so on. But in my fiction, those are used as charges because one thing that's important in an impeachment trial is you have to... If, if you look at impeachment trials, if you look at the Johnson trial, the if you look at the Clinton trial, and if you look at the attempted impeachment of John Tyler, uh, what they all have in common is before you get to the really serious charges, you have a set of charges that everybody knows aren't real, but, but at the same time are very demeaning to the president to have to, and the act of having to defend against them, the notion is you're already trying to reduce him in the public uh, eye. And that's the purpose of the charges in my fiction. People talk about this, of a habeas corpus and these other things. They don't really think they can convict him on those, but they want them out there so that the public will start thinking about this and they hope think less of him by the time they get to, this, to the more serious uh, charges. Yes? Uh, first of all, I enjoy this format better. You know the right questions to ask. <laughs> Um, two questions uh, that you, I'd ask you to speak to. Um, one is uh, the issue of executive privilege and how the current issue that's been very topical, how would that interplay with your current novel and, uh, and Abraham Lincoln generally? And then uh, secondly, Colin Powell was recently quoted as saying that he believed that men like Lincoln were giants and they put the country first. Uh, your comments just a short time ago said that really, you know, they're like everybody else. They're kind of like, like current politicians but didn't have, don't have the 24-7 media cycle and sound bites and so forth. Can you speak to that issue and, and do you disagree with uh, General sure, let, me, let me speak to both of those. Um, I, I wouldn't use the word giant, but I do think that Lincoln grew into a man who put the country first. Lincoln evolved a lot. Uh, in, um, in his thinking is in his four years in the White House. And you see this pretty plainly in uh, the, not so much in the Sandberg biography, you see that a little bit, but in the big biography that was done by his secretaries, uh, Nicolay and Hay, uh, after the, and by the way, this is at a time when the president had one assistant on his payroll, one, one. A few guards, an assistant, a valet, some servants, that was the White House staff. To get a second assistant, Lincoln had to get Congress to give his assistant a job in the Interior Department and get the Secretary of the Interior to send them over to the White House to work. And that was how he got two uh, uh, assistants. I, I, I think it's fair to call, I, I wouldn't call Lincoln a giant, although I see what people do, but I, I think it's correct that, that Lincoln grew into a person who, was, who did put the country ahead of his own political fortunes. I think that is a fair and accurate description uh, uh, of the way he evolved um, in, uh, in the White House. And you see this on, in the prosecution of the war. You know, a lot of people like to knock down Lincoln. Oh, if you look at the speech he gave in 1858, he said, I don't want to end slavery. He said this and he said this. You have to compare, you have to see how Lincoln changed over time and compare it to the mores of the time. And it's really striking how hard-nosed he became the subject of slavery in the course of his first two years in office, as opposed to the early, more vacillating view of slavery, for example, and other things like that. On the issue of executive privilege, it's really quite interesting. In Lincoln's day, 
it was considered unthinkable that a congressional committee could subpoena an, a, a, an executive branch functionary and force him or her, well, it would be him in those days, to testify. There had been some, some litigation earlier over, uh, back in, in the early years of the 19th century, about the ability of courts to make uh, people testify, and the courts had said, yes, we can. Uh, but it was unthinkable for Congress uh, uh, to do it. And, and to show you how different things were then, I actually just told the story in, something in, in a Bloomberg piece I wrote uh, last week. Uh, in 1864, there was this famous incident when the New York Herald, one of those powerful newspapers in the country at the time, uh, published Lincoln's State of the Union address before it was delivered to Congress. And by the way, in those days, delivered to Congress meant the president wrote it and gave it to a messenger who took it up to Capitol Hill and gave it to the Speaker of the House. That was how, this, that was how this, the speech was delivered. The president didn't go. The, the, uh, the, the message went. But anyway, so uh, it was published uh, in advance. So what happened? There was an uproar in Washington. This was considered the leaking of secret papers in time of war. It was described by the newspapers as an act of treason. And leading members of Congress really got onto the it's treason uh, bandwagon. And you know, the way that the story played out is, is quite interesting. Uh, most historians believe that the uh, State of the Union message was sold to the newspaper by a fellow named Wickoff, who was acting on behalf of Mrs. Lincoln, who was desperately in debt and needed money. Uh, most historians believe that is what happened. That is not, however, the official record. What, what happened officially was this. Congress appointed a committee to look into this. Uh, and Mr. Wickoff went and testified before the committee. The committee didn't believe his testimony. And so you know what they did? What you did in those days? Congress had a jail. They sent him down to the basement. They locked him up in the Capitol jail. And they said, going to stay in jail until he'll tell the truth. That was what they said. So Wickoff is down there in jail. So meanwhile, the president has a problem. Uh, if the historians are right, and we don't know, if the historians are right and it was Mrs. Lincoln, the president obviously is not going to let his wife suffer the penalty for treason. Uh, so what happens? The president goes to Capitol Hill. He has a meeting with the committee behind closed doors. No one knows what happened in that meeting. There were bits and pieces that were written about it later, but nobody actually knows what happened. After the meeting, the White House groundskeeper goes before the committee, the groundskeeper, mind you, and says, I stole the message. All right, here's where it gets tricky. A member of the committee, obviously he hadn't read the memo, uh, said, wait a minute, how is that possible? You're the groundskeeper. You don't get in the White House except every now and then. He said, oh, well, you know, I'm in there now and then, and now and then I'm in the president's office and doing this and that, and you know... As a youth, this is what he said, I used to read Shakespeare a lot, and I developed a fantastic memory. And what happened is each time I went to the president's office, I would read a couple of sentences of the message. And by the time this had been going on for a few weeks, I'd memorized the whole thing. I wrote it down, and I sold it to the Herald. And that was his story about what, uh, what happened and why it wasn't uh, treason. Now, Congress was investigating 
treason. It was not investing in the internal affairs of the executive branch. Executive privilege is something that's arisen because of the increasingly fluid definitions of the roles of the branches. And as government grows more complex, they'd have to be more fluid. They couldn't, they couldn't exist the way they had uh, traditionally. So as they become more fluid and more intertwined, then Congress begins more of a supervisory role over executive agencies. It's very unclear if that's what the framers envisioned, but then they didn't envision a, a government of this complexity. And it's hard to see how you can run this government of this complexity without significant congressional oversight, unless you just want the president to just be in charge of everything with nobody to say, uh, to say boo. That is without regard to your view about the current controversy. Uh, the point is that, that the privilege developed to protect from congressional scrutiny at least some circle of advice and deliberation within the president's most inner circle, the notion being that he won't get good advice if the people who are giving the, the advice have to worry that what they say is going to be made public. And that's been respected by Congress over the years. It's also been uh, upheld by courts over the years. There are a lot of other kinds of privileges that executives have asserted that have not been upheld by uh, by courts over the years, most famously, uh, perhaps in, in the memory of a lot of people here, um, the so-called protective uh, privilege during the Clinton administration uh, when the special prosecutor wanted to subpoena um, Secret Service agents, and the White House argued, actually I think quite plausibly, Secret Service won't be able to do its job if people think that agent who's protecting me might testify about what I've said, but the courts rejected. Uh, they actually thought it wasn't a bad argument, uh, but, but it, didn't, it didn't win. Other questions? Yes. Uh, just changing uh, gears, uh, my name's Gary Davis. <clears throat> Can you talk a little bit about the process of fiction and whether fiction reflects, in most cases, you in some respect? In other words, where does fiction come from, and are you somewhere in all your books? Oh, I see what you mean by the process of fiction. Well, that's a hard one. Um, I, was at a, 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 I was on a panel of, of, there were a bunch of novelists and me, is the way that I, I think about actual novelists. Uh, and one of them said, the only right answer to the question of where does it come from is I don't know. And, and that's fair. I'll tell you a little bit about the process. That I, I, I think that, that certainly writers, aspects of all of us in our experience, find their ways into our stories. But I don't do it intentionally. I'm never trying to write autobiographically. That typically, when I'm writing a novel, I have characters and a setting long before I have a story. I typically have people whose story I want to tell before I know what the story is. And my first novel, uh, which came out 10 years ago, uh, was very much of that nature. My wife, uh, who's here, could tell you uh, about the drafts that she suffered through uh, years and years before. The stories, that had, the stories were different, the names of the characters were different, but the characters themselves would be identifiable as the people ended up in the later, uh, in, in the book that finally got, uh, got published. Uh, so for me, one of the things that makes fiction really different is that I begin with characters and I only later do I come up with a story because the characters that interest me uh, uh, the most. That makes my writing a little bit harder for me than it otherwise would be, I suppose, because a lot of professional writers, by which I mean people who simply turn out novels regularly, they, they have it down to a science. They have an idea, they write an outline, and they write um, uh, a novel. Uh, a few years ago on Martha's Vineyard, uh, my wife and I went to a, a book signing uh, of another novelist, and, uh, and I remember, and she was and someone asked about her writing process, and she talked about writing an outline, and they did this and this and this, and, and I remember I asked, I was, we were sitting way in the back, I think we got there late, and, and I remember I, I asked her in the question and answer period, I said, do you ever find, because this is what happens to me, I said, do you ever, do you ever find that when you write an outline, 
then you end up having to throw it away because the characters just take over the novel and they have lives of their own and you can't control them. And she said, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, that, that probably hurts my, that probably makes my writing take a little bit longer uh, uh, also. Any others? Yes. Hi. Um, when you say uproar over what the president did or, or what he didn't in 1864, what does that mean? Um, those reading and those being a part of what was happening was a very rarefied world, wasn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. So that when you say uproar, it's, it's in that rarefied world. Most people did not know what was happening, or, or did well, they? Well, fair, fair question. That, that, that's a very good point. And two things. Yes, the uproar was mostly among the political class of that day. Now, in that day, so what are the features we know of the 1860s? Well, to vote, you had to be white. Most places, you had to be male. Not everywhere. Most places, you had to be male. There were few places that still had property requirements. So those had largely been swept away by Jacksonian democracy. So they didn't have so much of that um, uh, anymore. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's already a smaller class. Although what's interesting is that in the middle classes, at least, um, women, although they couldn't vote, were enormously politically active. There were a lot of political activity, including partisan political activity, among women. There were a lot of women's auxiliaries to parties and so on that would do a lot of fundraising and, and, and other things. Um, but to you, the way you detect an uproar when you're looking at the history is you look, you look at the newspapers. You see what did the newspapers cover because they only made their money by selling. Um, and the newspapers are the places where the uproar is, is produced. So what happens is the uh, Herald publishes the State of the Union message and the other newspapers all write about how this is treason. That's basically the way this, uh, that the thing goes. Now, are they just jealous because they didn't get the published Indian message? I don't know. But that's what I mean by an uproar. That's a perfectly reasonable question, and I only mean within the, these politically active classes and, of course, the people reading the, uh, uh, the newspapers. I just have one other question. Sure. Um, interesting you chose 7th Street, Northwest. Why? Southwest. Hmm? Southwest. Oh, Southwest. Yeah. Um, and I was going to say, not Georgetown, which is where an awful lot of black families lived, I think, by 1865. Yes, that's true. And Georgetown is in the novel. But Georgetown, there's a couple of features of Georgetown. Now people think of Georgetown as this place with these, these fancy homes. So you ask yourself, why are all the houses in Georgetown so small? Why are they so, lots so cramped if you've been to Georgetown? And the answer is because those were all shanties. That's why. Uh, Georgetown was inhabited by uh, initially escaped slaves, and the poor black people and poor white people lived there. It was an extremely dangerous, probably the most dangerous part of Washington. Nobody went into Georgetown after dark uh, because it was, it was so dangerous. Uh, but a lot of Washington in those days was ruled by the gangs, apart from the very tiny parts of it that were federal property and the parts of it that were, um, there were a few parts where rich people lived, uh, mainly um, north of what's now the mall. Uh, in those days, there was a, largely a canal there. Uh, north of the mall, um, not in what we now think of Upper Northwest, but more along uh, where now there are a lot of hotels and so on, and then and north of the capital and east of the capital. That's where all the rich people lived. And the rich of Washington was largely anarchy. Uh, it was really a mess. Um, so why Southwest? I, I chose, actually, I said 7th Street. I, actually, the truth is that in the course of working on the story, I moved the house to 9th Street because I had better views. I should have said 9th Street. I had better photographs on 9th Street than 7th. Um, uh, at that time, that, that area of Washington was known as the island because it was bordered on every side by the river or canal. It was hard to get to. There were only a few bridges. Um, 
it was working class black and white people in farming land. That's what was down there. And a lot of middle class black families lived on, um, on the island uh, because it was where you could uh, buy property. And, and, and so they were, they were there. The island was very noisy. The train tracks went through there. Um, the barges that went south left from the island and so on. But nevertheless, it was, uh, it was pretty quiet compared to the rest of the city. Yes. Very quickly, in your Bloomberg news piece from last week, you talked about with the Affordable Care Act decision how interesting and poignant it is that the decision hadn't been leaked. Yes. I was wondering how you think the court is able to keep such a tight grip on these decisions coming out when, as you point out, in other parts of Washington, leaks are all over the place. And now, in the last few days, we've seen some behind-the-scenes stories coming out, conversations between Roberts and Kennedy, for example. How is that materially different? How do you think about leaks in the context of maybe not before the decision, but then the backstory coming out? Is that inevitable? Let let me say uh, two different things. Washington does leak like a sieve, and I think it's despicable. I think it's absolutely despicable. I don't find leakers admirable unless there's something really horrible going on. They are lying every day to their coworkers, and there is no excuse for it. Unless there is something really awful, there's a scandal, you know, there's some horrible thing going on at the top that has to Watergate, that sort of thing. Yes, tell somebody, please, hurry, rush to the phone. Short of that, it's people trying to feel important. I've got a secret. Who can I know first? It's despicable. And I think that... We should punish it in the federal government as hard as we punish it if in – there's all sorts of rules in private industry about things you can't disclose, of, and, and we crack down hard on people. Why on earth we don't hold people in the federal government to the same standard, I have no idea. I think it's absolutely a despicable culture in terms of keeping secrets. Having said that, I do think it is remarkable that the court keeps its secrets. Its decisions don't leak. The last time that we know of – that a Supreme Court decision leaked in advance was in the 1970s. You know, it was a fairly minor uh, uh, decision. Um, there occasionally have been stories about it, but, but they don't turn out to be, by and large, um, well-sourced. And sure, afterwards, reporters can track down clerks and so on who occasionally tell them something, which I also think is despicable, by the way. Uh, but it doesn't leak in advance. And I think there, there are several reasons for that. One is the court is a small... It has a, it has, there's a culture to working at the court. From the justices to the messengers, there's a, there's a culture that is shared in the building. I know from my days as a law clerk there, when I was a law clerk with Justice Marshall many years ago, there's an understanding this mission will only work if we all cooperate and we don't talk about what we're doing. If they become just like everybody else, then they become just as bad as everybody else and less, I think, respected than... Um, uh, than uh, uh, other people. I think it's good that it doesn't leak. I think that's great. And I think it is a model that I wish the rest of Washington would, uh, would follow. You're going to tell me we have time for one more question, right? We have time for one more question if there is one. If not, I think my interviewer has another. Uh, uh, oh, oh, there's one. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't want to fully answer that question uh, because there's a discussion of that issue in the novel that I don't want to uh, want to uh, give away. But I think that suppose suppose a middle ground. Suppose he had not been impeached and also not been assassinated. We think in the same way. Um, if he'd simply served out his term 
through January, I guess March in those days of 1869, would you think in the same way? Well, he still would have won the war. He still would have freed the slaves. Of course, he also would have presided over the terrible economy of the late 1860s. Um, and that might have dragged down an error estimation. I don't know what would have happened. Um, that it is true that the assassination of Abraham Lincoln uh, did immediately at the time elevate him larger than life, uh, in a sense. And newspapers that had been his, his foes forever were running these marvelous, worshipful pieces about him, um, even before they knew whether he was going to die of his wounds um, uh, or not. Um, but I want to make clear, uh, I am not saying that I think Nick Blinken should have been impeached. I'm not saying I think he would have been impeached. I only think it's an interesting fictional premise to ask what might have happened if he had been impeached. What might the trial have been like? What might the arguments have been like? What might the public reaction have been like? Uh, those are the, and, and by the way, not to, I haven't mentioned this actually in my talk, what would the army have done? Because I, I, one of the things I should say, the army worshipped Lincoln. And, and a lot of the other politicians who were his rivals could never understand this. They never quite could figure out why, after a war that, where 600,000 people had died, the army had this worshipful attitude uh, uh, toward, uh, uh, toward uh, Lincoln. Uh, and one, by the way, one of the other things that, that happened during the Civil War was that uh, in 1864 election comes, the soldiers who were from states that were close but were, but were, but were thought to be leaning toward Lincoln got to go home and vote. Uh, and the soldiers from states that were close but were not leaning toward Lincoln, didn't get to go home and, uh, and, and, and vote. And, and anyway, just by coincidence, it was just who they could get leave for at that particular uh, uh, moment. But I don't know how history would have judged Lincoln uh, differently. I do think our historical judgment of him is fair. I think he was our greatest president. I think he faced challenges no other president has faced. And he faced them with very few allies. That's thing you've got to remember. Nobody was on his side. From the moment Lincoln arrived in Washington, there was already a plan to get rid of him. It's in all the history books. It's called the Albany Plan. It was under Seward, who was at that time the former governor of New York. He wasn't yet Secretary of State. And the notion was to meet the new president, stick him in his hotel, not let him get out, and tell him, look, this is the new plan. These are the people are going to be in the cabinet. I, Seward, am going to run things, and you get to be president. Okay? How's that sound? <laughs> And Lincoln didn't go along with it, and, and somehow they thought he was the, they thought he was a country bumpkin, and, and they were uh, uh, they were wrong. He was cleverer than all of them. He deserves all of what we give him in honor in history, but it was also time of enormous complexity, and he is not without blemish. And some of the blemishes are pretty big ones, and and that's really the the only point. I mean, it doesn't in any way lessen my admiration for him because I think people are complex. We're not gods. We're only mortals here on earth. That all of us, I assume. Every politician, everyone we may vote for and support enthusiastically, they'll all have terrible things they've done or thought. Or you can't. We're just, we're human. That that's life. And the fact that Lincoln had them does not reduce my admiration for him. But it is something that I think at the t makes an interesting fictional premise. So thank you all very much.